This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. And I know this personally as I use Squarespace for my website and find it so easy to use with plenty of great templates to choose from to make it look super engaging and professional, even for a technophobe like me. And if you need any more encouragement, here are some of the amazing things Squarespace offer. You can start a completely personalised website with the new guided design system, Squarespace Blueprint AI. You can also sell your products and services with an online store. From hand-knitted decorations to digital content or services, Squarespace has the tools you need to start selling online. Squarespace supports entrepreneurship by helping you to easily manage your clients and invoices in one streamlined workflow. Head to squarespace.com forward slash fail 10. That's fail 1010 for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code fail 10 to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. This series of How to Fail with Elizabeth Day is sponsored by Teetulia, my favourite new bar in London's Covent Garden. It's actually a tea bar where you can also buy great organic teas. As something of a green tea snob myself, I have to say their jasmine has become a cupboard staple in my house this year. More importantly, they sell tea cocktails made with infusions from their tea, which are very delicious and, I might add, very, very strong. There are books for sale too, with selections by Tilda Swinton, John Hamm, Lionel Shriver and, well, me. I picked 10 books that have been important to me, and the whole list is for sale now. They also have an excellent online shop and are giving 20% off everything to you lovely listeners. Just go to tituliabar.com, that's T-E-A-T-U-L-I-A-B-A-R.com, and enter how to fail, all one word, at checkout. Thank you very much to Titulia. Hello and welcome to How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, the podcast that celebrates the things that haven't gone right. This is a podcast about learning from our mistakes and understanding that why we fail ultimately makes us stronger. Because learning how to fail in life actually means learning how to succeed better. I'm your host, author and journalist Elizabeth Day, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what they've learned from failure. Mira Sayal is the original multi-hyphenate, a comedian, writer, playwright, singer, journalist, producer and actress. She came to prominence when she co-wrote and starred in the award-winning BBC comedy series Goodness Gracious Me and was BAFTA nominated for her later role in The Kumars at number 42. But she's also a critically acclaimed novelist. Her first book, Anita and Me, was loosely based on her own childhood growing up in a mining village near Wolverhampton to Punjabi parents. It tells the story of the exuberant Mina and her best friend Anita and takes place against the backdrop of rising racial tension in the 1960s. When asked what she wants to be when she grows up, Mina replies, blonde. The novel is now a GCSE set text and was adapted for the screen by Sayal herself. More recently, Sayal has starred in the BBC series The Split and Paddington 2. She's married to the actor Sanjeev Bhaskar, has two children, and when asked by The Guardian what the most important lesson life had taught her was, replied, 
Roll with the changes, because that's what life's about. In the same interview, she also confessed that her most embarrassing moment was being asked for her autograph midway through a smear test. <laughs> Mira, such a pleasure to welcome you. Did that actually happen? It, it, it did actually happen. Yeah, yeah. Did you have to give the autograph while? while? Are you true? No, she she did have her hands full at that point when she asked, but I said, yes, when we've done here, I am... Happy. I'll wash my hands and so will you and then I'll give you an autograph. Oh my goodness, yeah. that is quite the scenario. It's quite the scenario. I wonder when she actually recognised me. <laughs> Which bit of me did she go, that's Mira Sayal. <laughs> but that quote about rolling with life's changes, I think, is so apt for this particular podcast. Because yeah. is it your experience that when things have gone quote unquote wrong in the past, that it's actually provided you with a sort of opportunity you hadn't expected? Yes. I mean, I think I have that sort of immigrant pragmatism. It came with, I suppose, having parents that went through such chaotic times that you couldn't plan anything. I mean, Mm. my father was a victim of partition. He was in a refugee camp at 13. My mother's family was similarly affected by empire. And they ended up, they both sort of ended up coming to Britain because the safe lives they thought they would have were shattered completely. And I think you sort of inherit that in your DNA. That's why we had suitcases on top of the wardrobe. That's what I thought when I was a kid. It's like, in case we have to leave really quickly in the night. So you grow up with this understanding that life can change in the twinkling of an eye and you have to be prepared for it. And there are some things that are totally out of your control. So what can you do other than roll with it and learn from it? As a child, were you fearful of that idea of dramatic change or was it just something that you assimilated as part and parcel of existence almost. Yeah, I think you do. I mean, I don't remember the rivers of blood speech, but I remember my parents talking about it when I was a kid and how insecure that made them feel and the whole atmosphere of the late 60s and the 70s. If you were a person of colour in Britain, there was a feeling that you could be deported at any time or that you could walk out your door and be faced with hostility physically or verbally. So even though it wasn't discussed that much, it was part of our armour. Now, my children don't feel that. They have a completely different feel about being British. They're, you know, a couple of generations on. But I think for us and our parents, that was certainly part of just life, really, living with the insecurity. And you're very well known for using humour as a way of skewering political correctness and racial tension. And I wonder if that's something that came naturally to you, to use humour in that way. I think it did, because I came from a family that just really enjoyed a laugh. There were always loads of other Punjabi friends in our house every weekend, because your friends become your family when you're so far from your family, and we were very tight. And I think that's how they got rid of tension, that they would sit around, eat food from the home country, sing songs from the home country, and tell filthy jokes. (laughs) That's how I learned most of my Punjabi. I know all the swear words. <laughs> Can't have a philosophical discussion, can tell you several words for a lady's parts. Um, so humour seemed to be the best defence mechanism. And I found that growing up as well. I mean, a lot of people that do comedy will tell you if you're making someone laugh, they're too busy to hit you. So it is like the best, the best way of diffusing tension, of gaining acceptance and only smart people make jokes. You know, a sense of humour tells people that you're quick, you're intelligent. So it gives you, a, it's a kind of really brilliant sword. 
and you have to use it wisely. But certainly for me, I always saw the funny side of things that were supposed to be dramatic, like being cross-cultural, so dramatic. You poor, mixed-up kids, you know. And for me, it wasn't, I didn't feel mixed up. I just felt quite lucky that I could see the frailties and stupidities and absurdities of both the communities that I had a foot in. So I think humour can save your life, really. Let's talk about your first failure. These are such great failures. Thank you so much. <laughs> great failures. I have great They're failures. great. They're Thank the best. Thank you so much. Like you're, you're the best at your failures. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, but I'm actually going to reverse the order because the third failure you gave me was your failure to be good at maths. And uh, it relates particularly to your childhood and yeah. to that immigrant work ethic that you say you had which is like if I just work harder at this I will succeed but that wasn't the case tell us why oh my gosh I I don't know when it started because I remember at junior school I found maths quite easy adding up subtracting I mean it's all quite simple still know my tables up to 12 really well great at mental arithmetic the minute we got to senior school and it started becoming a bit more conceptual with the signs and the causes and the algebra and it was like I don't know if I had some kind of dyslexia, but literally the stuff would swim on the page. It made absolutely no sense to me. And for someone that was used to being able to get through things just by slog, because I wasn't naturally brilliant like some of the girls I was at school with. I went to an all-girls grammar school. You know, some of them would literally go, no, I haven't really done any revision, and then sail through with, you know, straight A's. Hate those girls. Yeah. I was always a sort of, you know, I slogged for my marks. And for most things, I could get through by slogging. Immigrant work ethic. It didn't work with maths, no matter how much I looked at those pages. My brain did not understand it. And so every year I failed my maths exam. And it just became a question of, well done, you only failed by 10 marks this year. Or that that was the level of disappointment and failure every year. And the harder I tried, the worse it got. And it didn't make it easier that I had a really unpleasant, horrible maths teacher I wish I could say his name. Anyway, he knows who he is. And he frightened everyone. He was a shouter. And if you got stuff wrong, he would shout and make you cry, literally make you cry. You said he was a racist and a sadist in your Yeah, email. I think he was. He, he definitely used to pick on me. He probably picked on me twofold because, you know, I was terrible at maths. But also, he didn't like any of the outsiders. You know, he picked on the overweight girls. He picked on, there was a girl with a stammer, he picked on her. I mean, he was just vile. So when you couple not understanding with that kind of teacher, I remember feeling sick before maths lessons. I would literally feel sick because I thought, I know the homework's all wrong. I know I'm not, I don't understand anything that's going on. I can't ask him because he will shout at me. So it was a terrible, horrible spiral. That's horrid. It is horrible. Did you translate that failure personally? So did you feel that you, Mira, were a failure because you were rubbish at maths? Or did you manage to disconnect it from yourself? Well, luckily, I was good at other things. I mean, I was, you know, predictably really good at English and I had a facility for languages. So at least I had other things. And I was good at netball. Still still play it. What was your position? Goal shooter. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> still play it twice a week love it anyway so there were other things I could hold on to and I think every kid needs that it doesn't matter what you could be bad at lots of things but every kid needs what they feel is their superpower and once you've got that one thing whether it's music or football or 
Latin or whatever it is, you can hold that to yourself and go, I'm good at this. This is my thing. So I had other things. But the awful thing was in them days, and I think it's probably still true, you couldn't actually apply for any higher education without a maths O level as it was in those days. And it was looming. And I thought there is actually a real chance I will not be able to go to uni because I don't see how I'm ever going to ever pass this exam. It's so difficult as well when it's just that your mind doesn't work that way. I can yeah. completely relate because I, like you, was really good at English and really rubbish at maths. It was just that I couldn't make my brain function to understand it. <laughs> no, I know. It is like a language. And yeah. I really admire people that say maths is beautiful, the patterns of it. And, it, you know, once you know the rules, you know, you can apply it to anything. And I see the enthusiasm and joy they get from it. And it's like they're talking... In a different, I mean, I just, it's like the Charlie Brown, wow, 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 you know, none of that makes sense. It's one of those cumulative effects. If It's like trying to build a house on sand. If you don't understand the basics, you're not going to understand anything beyond that. And the basics were wrong. My house was built on tapioca. <laughs> and what did your parents make of it? What did they feel about it? Well, they moved from despair through disappointment to incredulity to finally paying for a maths tutor in my O-level year, and this is a loose term, Ma- the maths tutor that they could afford was a friend of theirs called Mr. Sevia. I still remember his name, God love him. And he was a maths graduate in India, that is true. However, like many immigrants, he wasn't considered to have transferable skills. He might have been a genius in India, but in England that didn't mean anything. He would have had to retrain and that cost money. So, in fact, he was an ice cream man. So <laughs> he would turn up... <laughs> every week to tutor me in his ice cream van often with the jingles on you know this is not good for your street cred and even now when I hear the teddy bears picnic I get this cold math sweat (laughs) I literally get the math sweat (laughs) I've got to do algebra it's the teddy bears picnic and he would park on the drive and whatever he did something went in I scraped a C I can remember the relief of putting all those books away but it was a really it was a really interesting lesson because it was good for me to be confronted with something that I had no control over, that was beyond my powers to change or redeem. I did what I could. You know, my parents got creative. I looked for alternatives. But I just had to sit back and go, you know what, that is just something I'm never, never going to be good at. And I've found out that I can survive yeah. <laughs> the rest of life without doing trigonometry. I think that's so interesting because the subject of this podcast is failure. I think sometimes people believe that I'm advocating actively pursuing failure, which I'm not. I think, as you say, accepting failure is also about accepting your own limits. Yeah. And if you have tried your absolute best and you've tried your hardest and you've tried mm. to think creatively about it and it's still not working, Mm-mm. then it's so much better for you to gracefully sort of accept oh, yeah, it and move on. Absolutely. And it's and it's changed my attitude to education. You know, with my own children and certainly particularly where I'm living now in the North London bubble, where the pressure on children to be good at everything is phenomenal. I just don't engage with, you know, Tarquin's doing grade eight violin. He's translated all of Harry Potter into Mandarin just for fun. He's such a sweetie. (laughs) Okay, good for Tarquin. But you know, kids can't be good at everything. And if they're breaking their backs to be good at everything and get the A stars, this is when you end up with mental health problems. This is when you end up with a generation of kids that are self-harming in secret or are burnt out by 18 or 
go through life feeling like failures because they weren't good at maths, because there were one or two things that they weren't top of the class at. And actually, it doesn't matter. You know, it's more important you are following your passion, because if you follow your passion, you'll be good at it. You'll work at it. It'll be something you love doing. And you accept you can't get straight A's and everything. Good if you're one of those kids that do it effortlessly, but not at the expense of your mental health. And you did end up following your passion. And what I find interesting about the mass thing is that you said that your parents eventually had to accept the fact that you were not going to be a doctor. (laughs) (laughs) The Asian dream. Yeah, not even marrying one. I haven't even got close. Such a a disappointment. CBE. (laughs) I know. Um, Yeah, because they did that extraordinary thing. They looked at me as a whole holistic child and went, what is this child good at? What seems to give her joy? The two coincide. She gets joy from telling stories and languages and writing stories in English. They said, do that. Mm. And at that point, I was literally the only Asian kid that I knew that had their parents' blessing to go and do something that wasn't medicine, law, pharmacy, business studies, you know, the accepted, proper, respectable subjects. Oh, my God, they got so much stick. Did they? Yes, they got, I mean... They wouldn't tell me half of it, but they would get the lectures from other well-meaning uncles and aunties who would say, "What well, you know. I remember one of them said, why do you think there would, anyone will give a brown girl a job that, that's doing English? And the only thing she can do is teach. Who would want a brown woman to teach their kids English? You know, really sort of, wow. which made me and them, I, I'm sure they didn't tell me, but feel really attacked, I suppose, about it. But this is the extraordinary thing about my parents. I understand where that comes from with a lot of immigrant parents. It's fear. It's fear for their children's future. We are strangers in a strange land. You know, medicine is an international language. A spleen is a spleen in every country. If you do that, we will stop worrying. I totally get it. Particularly in my father's case, having been through the chaos of partition, he could have easily got like that, defended, frightened, holding on to his children. And, you know, he went the other way. His heart got bigger and he expanded Mm. and he had faith in the universe and faith in me instead of being frightened by it. And, wow, what a gift that was. Your parents sound amazing. They are. And they've been married for how long? They were married for 60 years. My father passed away last September. I'm sorry. Mm. But his influence is constant, actually, constant. And you have a younger brother, Rajiv, who is a friend. Hello, Rajiv. <laughs> Hello, bro. <laughs> he's going to be really embarrassed now. He hates being named Jags. I know, he's, he's a very, he doesn't like attention at all, does he? He really doesn't. Total opposite to me. <laughs> Let's keep talking about him, not kidding. Um, but what did he do at university? Did he go, because he's a journalist now. He did politics, I think, and economics. God, I'm, I'm such a terrible sister. I'm pretty sure that's what he did. Was that acceptable? Awesome. Yeah, 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 yeah. But in fact, you know, my parents were fairly, I mean, they were laid back with both of us. They were. With both of us, they said, do the thing that gives you joy and that you're good at. So you ended up at Manchester University. I did. You studied drama and English. English. Yeah. You graduated with a double first. All right, no thank biggie. you. Yeah, good girl. That's <laughs> only because I, I wasn't doing any sex and drugs and rock and roll at university. <laughs> what a waste of time. <laughs> but then you were going to do a master's, weren't you? And it sounds like you were going to become a teacher. I wanted to work, and it was very, it was a, a real out there concept back then. But I wanted to work 
with drama, through drama, with kids with learning difficulties and drama is psychotherapy, really, which is now quite a thing. But then it wasn't. And there was only one place that actually did the MA at that point, and that was Leeds. So I had an MA place at Leeds and I'd also booked a PGCE place at Goldsmiths. So my life was really lined up for graduation. Yeah. And then what happened? Your life took a slightly different direction. Yeah. Sliding doors moment, wasn't it? In my last year of university, I developed a one-woman show with a great friend of mine called Jackie Shapiro, who was also in the department. And it was, in my dramatic way, I thought, this is my swan song to acting because I don't think I'm ever going to make a living from it. I don't see women like me out there. And if you don't see it, you don't think you can be it. And I thought, I've played all these wonderful roles at uni, but I don't see how I'm going to get that work out there. So as a swan song, I thought I'd put everything that I was feeling about who I was and my situation into a one-woman show called One of Us, in which I played about 15 different parts. And it was about a young Asian girl who'd run away from home to become an actress. (laughs) And it was set at her first audition, and she talks to the audience as if she's at her audition. And I did it for one night at the studio in Manchester. We had a drama studio where you could put plays on every Monday, and it had this extraordinary sort of impact, really. I remember one of my friends, Tony, after I finished the show, I was sitting on the stairs, really quite emotional, because I thought, oh, I love doing this and I'm not going to be doing it very much longer. And Tony came and put his arm around me and he said, I've known you for four years and I didn't know. This is what you've thought. This is how you felt. So that, to cut a long story short, this little, little play that I thought would be on for one night got picked up by the National Student Drama Festival won some awards there, got picked to go to Edinburgh, won an award there. And literally my last week, a director from the Royal Court saw me and offered me a job. Two weeks before I was due to start my MA. Incredible. Do you believe in the universe having a plan for you rather than you, Mira Sayal, developing your five-year plan and sticking to it rigidly? Like, Are you open to those sort of opportunities? Is that how you live your life? Yeah, I think that word open is really really important I know so few people whose life has gone to plan life doesn't work that way and I have had the rug pulled from under me so many times in my life personally and professionally so it's sort of slightly pointless it's nice to have aims and ambitions absolutely conceptually it's nice to have plans but even a plan b c d and e sometimes doesn't cover the unexpected So being open to the opportunities that can come and to roll with them is really important, especially in my profession as a self-employed creative. On the other hand, you know, that bit of luck, and it was a huge amount of luck, wouldn't have happened if I hadn't created the opportunity in the first place. Yeah. If I hadn't had the chutzpah and the self-determination to create that show, then none of it would have happened. So it is a mixture of planning and putting the work in but also accepting that opportunity you know the opportunity might not take you in the place you think you're going to end up you don't know where it's going to go and I do think it's so important for women particularly to claim the hard work that has led them places rather than just to say I'm so lucky it was just luck it was luck it's nothing to do with me silly old me I think that's very very important culturally to sort of say that you put the work in absolutely and we're not good at that as women we're not good at owning that although I do love that this is saying isn't it I think it's Henry Ford who said it's a funny thing the harder I work the luckier I get yeah I love that 
It's a good one. It's a good one. Well, it's ironic that your one woman show, which led to all of this incredible success, was about auditions because (laughs) (laughs) your second failure is auditions and how much you hate them. Oh my God, I just hate them. I hate them. And it is, of course, the bread and butter of of every actor's life, unless you're one of those really rare 1% that are so famous and loved that you, of course, never have to audition for anything again. You just get asked to do things. And occasionally I get asked to do things, especially in the theatre, which is lovely. But pretty much every every screen job I've had to go up for. And now we're in the days of self-tape. This Ugh. is a huge thing yeah. where you literally have to put yourself, you get sent to script maybe the day before. You have to learn it as well as you can put yourself on tape, on your phone, whatever, and you send it off. You don't even get into the room to meet the people, so you can at least try and charm them into giving you work. It's all about that self-tape, and um, I'm terrible at them. I, I can probably count on two hands over 25 years the number of jobs I've got from auditions. Well, so when you're filming yourself on your phone, mm. it must be really distracting because you're just looking at your face while you're doing it. Yeah, well, I, I wrote my husband in or my daughter or who, whoever's about. Some people oh, have so those clever yeah. tripods, yeah. Um, but you need someone else to read the other lines. That's the thing. So there are lots of companies that will do it for you. It's a lot of time and effort. I mean, worth it because, of course, you might end up with an amazing job at the end of it. But I tend to do that awful thing of walking into an audition, mostly feeling a bit desperate. Right. <laughs> and it's the worst thing. The worst thing is to walk into any room giving off that I really want this job. And I'm not always desperate for the job. I'm just desperate about the situation. I'm already telling myself you're going to be really shit because you never do yourself justice. And I, and I rarely do. And what do you think it is about the audition scenario that makes you feel like that, that gets to you? Because you're clearly extremely talented at performing on stage and in front of the cameras when you get the job. So what is it about that bit that's so horrible? I think actually, underneath the layer of desperation, is I, I'm really pissed off that I have to do it. <laughs> I'm really pissed off that I'm a product. But I imagine that there's a power dynamic at play when you're a woman as well, because particularly when you were starting out, I'm imagining that most of the directors and the people you were auditioning in front of were men who were not only in a position of power because they were in the position of offering you a job, yeah. but in the position of power because of the sexual dynamics that work in that room so do you think sexism was at play as well oh I'm sure there were all kinds of isms going on I mean interestingly I, did, I rarely got seen for you know Asian girl parts in my 20s because I was no one's idea of what an Asian girl looked like what they expected was somebody demure with waist length black hair great big doe eyes and a sweet disposition what they got was gobby big tits curly hair and not a size 10 so you know yeah. immediately I wasn't up for those parts anyway and it, that was a good thing it forced me I mean, I'm a character actress, and that is not a a term of derision for me. That is a great place to be in the industry because they are the most interesting roles. I've never played a romantic lead. I've never played pretty and feminine. I've happily played ugly, old, difficult, all of those things that women are not supposed to like doing. I like all the actresses I admire, like Julie Walters and Kathy Burke and... And Judy Dench have done those kind of parts, which they're given the label character parts. But, but for me, they are the interesting women. Mm. They're the women outside what is considered society's definition of feminine. Which means that you're in work consistently, from my perspective anyway, as someone who sort of watches you being terrific in the split. You know, you're not someone who has been diminished by growing older. 
Uh, well, that's the great boon of being a character actress because my selling point was never my youth or my beauty. It was, I hope, my ability to play really interesting parts. It must be really hard if that is how you, you know, your career is dependent on your looks. And that is why you get the people doing terrible things to their faces because they look in the mirror and they go, that's not the face I had when I was 20 slash 30. And that means I'm not going to work anymore. Have you ever felt that sort of pressure or put that pressure on yourself to look a certain way at any time during your career? Well, no, because ultimately I think I was a bit too lazy. Yeah. <laughs> I think I could have I could have starved myself for 25 years and been a size eight and probably it would have got me more work. But there was a bit of me that just goes, actually, fuck that, because I'm a normal size woman in real life. And people should see normal sized women on screen having a good time and being happy with themselves. Preach! <laughs> also, you're so beautiful. Your skin oh. is amazing as well. Oh, thank really you. I've got makeup on. Right, I'm going to ask you for your skincare routine after this. But the audition thing, is it difficult not to take it personally? So, when you had a really horrible audition mm. and the feedback came back, what would the feedback be? Oh, well, they will, they will never say your client was shit and we will never employ her again. They will, they will say things, we've gone in a different direction, which covers a whole load of isms, actually. I mean, you have to accept sometimes you're not right for the part. And I absolutely know because I've been on the other side of the table and I have auditioned people when I've been producing. And I can say hand on heart, I know now it is not about you. Anyone that manages to get into the room to see a director and producer has already beaten loads of other people. So you're good and you're there. And it's a, it's a chemical thing when you're casting. It's sometimes the way somebody turns their head or delivers a line or they just look how the writer imagines. So I know that intellectually it can be a, a million different reasons not to do with the fact that you're talented. And this is where the pragmatism comes in. You have to go, that wasn't mine. Mm. That one wasn't mine. I knew in the split that was mine. I read it and I thought, I really hope I get this because I know this woman. Yeah. I can play this woman. And maybe that showed. And I did audition. And maybe that showed when I auditioned. But was it the split was such a female-centric Maybe that made the difference it? because I was I was talking to women the whole way through. Yeah. You know, the director was a woman, the writer was a woman, the producers were women, a lot of the crew were women. It was fantastic. And it maybe I did carry in a different attitude when I when I walked in to do that part. I don't know. So yeah, it is hard not to take it personally, but I you can't. That way madness lies. I wish I was better at auditions. I also hate the fact that sometimes I feel like I've let people down because for you to be in the room to audition, you are there because so many people might have fought your corner. And I know that, especially for parts that don't say Asian on them. If I've got in the room, I know that my agent has been battling away to get me in that room. I know that some brilliant casting director has battled away to get me in that room. So when you don't get it, you sort of also, I think I'm more disappointed that I might have let the people down that fought to get me in there. It really reminds me of an interview I did with Deborah Francis White, the Guilty Feminist, on this podcast, mm -hmm. who she used to teach students at RADA, and she said to them, treat your first year of auditions actively as if you're not going to get the auditions. Best way. And, and she said, in that way, it's data acquisition. What you're learning in that first year is how to be good at auditions and yeah. what they can do for you, and but you're not going to get a part. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought that was such an interesting way, yeah. and it sounds exact, exactly the same as how you've come to... 
assess the process and I feel like you can use it in every part of life you can use it in dating so if you have a bad date it's just it's not for you it's just the chemistry was wrong it's not about you as a person yeah absolutely that is and it's funny I mean you know the the few auditions I have got most of them I haven't gone in thinking I really want this job I've gone in thinking this looks really interesting but um not the sort of you know, that sort of tummy flutter, I really want this. I felt with Goldie on the split. Do you think that auditions are outdated? I mean, is there another way of doing it? Oh, my gosh. Well, self-tape is happening more and more. Is that better? Sometimes it can do a disservice to people that, you know, actually come across better in real life than they do on screen. I think I'm one of those people. (laughs) I don't think I always look great on screen. But on the other hand, if it's a screen project, then how you look on screen is actually what they're looking for. Mm. So this is going to happen more and more. And what do you make of the Me Too and the Time's Up movement? Well, a long time coming, I think. I feel like we're working in a different atmosphere now and that can only be a good thing. I think it also means that I hope that you walk into situations now, particularly um, things like auditions, with a greater sense of protection, actually. It'll take quite a few years. There are layers and layers of patriarchy to unpeel. It's, it's been such a long time coming. It will be a long time to find its equilibrium too, I think. But we just need mutual respect in our business. And it is a business because it deals so much with the physical, with how people look, that mm. there was always going to be abuse attached to it. In an industry where there are such powerful people that can literally change the course of your life with a thumbs up or thumbs down, there was going to be abuse. So it'll be interesting to see what the shake-up is. Working on the split, it felt different, that there was an all-female gaze on the work and in the crew. Things that are happening, for example, at the Globe and Amelia and the whole sort of atmosphere and practice that they're bringing because it's an all-female team. For example, they had a matinee for babies at Amelia the other day, I think the first ever in the West End, where mums could bring their babies and it didn't matter how much noise they made. And they're doing another one now. And you think, gosh, that's such a simple idea. But it's sort of changing the temperature and the feel Mm. of what could have been a really stuffy institution, the West End Theatre. So it's nice that the fallout of Me Too is having these kind of ripple effects. and And I love that. Do you feel anger at the isms that you've experienced I feel that I'm getting more radicalised the older I get. (laughs) Angry old women. I shall wear purple. Um, Well, that's a great thing about getting older. You just give less of an F for everything, don't you? Mm. You get... I'm certainly so much less scared about who I upset. I'm careful how I say things. I don't go out to offend or upset people. But I'm really clear about calling it out when I see it now. And that's another great thing that's happened, that you don't feel you're never going to work again. And what happens is actually when you actually call people out on stuff, they can be defensive, but actually they will listen. That didn't happen before. There's a sense of shame attached now to being called out at stuff. Yeah. You know, even if people are are embracing diversity and equality because they feel shame about it rather than they really want to do it, I don't really care. The outcome is the same. Exactly. And when do you think you fully found your voice as a fully realised woman? What age? Do you think it happens? I know, last week. (laughs) (laughs) It's an ever-evolving thing, isn't it? When did that happen? Probably not till my 40s, I would say. I wish it had been sooner. Mm. But things happen when they happen. We all ripen at different times. 
So talking about the matinee for babies mm. is another seamless link. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On to your third and final failure, which is, and I love this failure. We've never had one like it. When you had your son, you try to follow the Gina Ford routine, God which for anyone me. who doesn't know is this super strict routine for babies where they have set bedtimes and you can't look them in the eye when you're breastfeeding them and rigorous feeding schedules. And well, you would know more about it. Explain what the Gina Ford routine is. Yeah, you, you pretty much got it in a nutshell. And it was all the rage when I had my son in 2005. I mean, even, I remember even Nick Clegg giving an interview. He'd had a kid recently going, we're following Gina Ford. And everyone's going, yes, of course. And this was very much in the atmosphere. Now, it had been a long time since I'd had a baby. There are 13 years between my kids, and I had forgotten everything, really. And it was a shock, you know. I was in my early 40s. I'd just got my career back on track, and now I was going to have to stop it again. There were all kinds of things going on in my head. Absolutely delighted and surprised about this little late miracle. It must have been my last egg creaking its way down my fallopian tube on I crutches. That. I love hearing stories like that. But... I think I got pregnant six weeks after we got married. (laughs) (laughs) So everything was happening very quickly. And in the midst of all this bliss and fear and chaos that this had thrown me into, structure seemed to be the way that would get me through it. Now, I didn't follow everything. I had that whole not looking the baby in the eye when you're breastfeeding. That just sounds cruel. But Gina Ford, it was a thing. I think I gave up at about two months and it broke me. It broke me. And I just can't believe that I fell for something so prescriptive, so clearly bonkers, written by a woman that had never had children. Can I just say that again? That had never had children. (laughs) That should have been the red flag, right? That's the most bonkers thing of the whole the whole thing. Because when you sent me your failure, it reminds me of a job that I did in journalism where I interviewed Gina Ford. And it must actually have been around that time that mm. Nick Clegg was following the programme. And she was such a mysterious and guarded woman. She would only do a phone conversation and there were sort of strict regulations about when exactly I could call her, how long it was going to last, what I could and couldn't ask her. And she was extremely odd. And I had never realised that she's had no children. As you said, she's never had her own baby. She's looked after other people's babies, but that's a completely different thing. It is utterly different. And I wish I'd known that. And I'm so angry with myself that I wasted the first precious two months of my son's life, who was little anyway. He was three weeks early. He didn't feed well. He got gastroenteritis when he was a few weeks old. There were all kinds of other things going on. And I should have just followed my instincts and just gone, whatever this kid needs, he can have. If he wants to sleep on me, he can sleep on me. If he wants to feed every hour, it'll kill me, but let him feed every hour. Luckily, you know, I didn't do this forever, but I regret those two months. And I also understand how how mothers get sucked into this insecurity, because that's where I was, you know, not knowing who to listen to fearing I was going to mess everything up because I'd forgotten how to bring up. You know, I really actually had to look up how much milk does a baby need and when. Just basic stuff like that when I should have asked other women that have had babies. I should have asked, well, I did ask my mum, she couldn't remember. But I certainly should have plugged into the women that know. Those are the women that have had babies. The women that had the happy, gurgly babies, I should have gone, what did you do? And on top of that, gone, every child is different. Mm. You know, so I'll take that on board. Now, if I'd gone back to the culture I come from 
and I'd remembered what they do, you just basically don't move out of your bed for six weeks. That's the rule. There's none of this, yes, I had a caesarean and I was in Sainsbury's three hours later, you know, getting ingredients for pasta tonight. You stupid woman, that's the last thing you should be doing. The whole of your family should be treating you like a goddess. You have just done the most incredible thing. You should be lying in your bed, having a baby moon, being brought food so your womb can knit and your milk can come in and you can stop stressing. Because the, the reason your milk doesn't come in is that you're stressed. And then don't even look at those pictures of people going, I'm back into my size 10 jeans. Good for you, because you had a tummy tuck when you had your cesarean, don't lie. There are all this stuff that we are fed that just makes new mothers feel terrible about themselves at a time where they should be being celebrated as having done the most extraordinary thing in the world. Yeah. And I wish I'd listened to that. And what happened when you had your daughter 13 years earlier? Did you feel... The same pressure? No, no. And I was in a very different point of my life. She was very wanted. I was absolutely ready. I've been nest building for ages. My career wasn't at a point where it was when I had my son. So taking time off, you know, I'd had a lot of time off because I've been unemployed for quite long swathes. So I was in a very different place. I was young. I was young. I bounced back really quickly. It was a natural birth. And I absolutely follow my instincts on that. I get it. So with your son, you were trying to impose structure on Mm. on the chaos that you perceived around. Yeah. Yeah. Now I look back, I was, you know, mentally in a mess. Call it postnatal depression if you want. I didn't feel right for at least a year, year and a half. I didn't work at all. I ended up with a, a son that didn't sleep through the night for two years. And probably that is because I just messed with him <laughs> at two months old when I should have not been doing any of that Gina Ford bollocks. Do you still um, feel guilty about it? I do a bit. And I'm trying not to. Yeah, you must not. Because he doesn't remember any of it. <laughs> he doesn't. And children are their own characters yes. as soon as they're born, really. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, he brings me endless joy. I just wish I'd been a little less hard on myself and I wish that we're never honest about it. I think the atmosphere's changed. You know, there's so many Mm. discussions and podcasts and books now about, you know, the Bad Mothers Club. Even that title is sort of weird. No, just the Mothers Club. If we'd all had the honesty to sit together and go, this is awful, isn't it? I'm feeling a complete loon. I'm not sleeping. My body's a car crash. I have this bundle of joy. I'm supposed to feel happy and all I feel is confused. And I think postnatal depression is so linked to the loss of identity that you feel when you have children, especially when you're a self-employed creative and you know that there's no pension plan, there's no maternity leave. You know, you've stopped your career. You're going to have to work really, really hard to remind people you exist and to get back there. And then you've got to juggle this baby with those ridiculous hours. There are all, you know, the pressure's intense. And there's so little support for self-employed women that have children. And I think postnatal depression is so linked to that. It is that, who am I now? And again, I should have remembered the phrase that the translation in Punjabi is, there are two people born when a baby is born, a baby and a mother. You are a completely new person. You are new in every way, mentally, physically, spiritually. Embrace that. It is another life. That's very beautiful. Yeah. I forgot it. I forgot all of that in those first two months. And instead, I went, Gina Ford, you have all the answers. She really didn't. And what was your husband doing at this time? How did he feel about what was happening? 
Well, he was around. We were both running around like headless chickens. <laughs> he was also a self-employed creative. Yes. Being like, what do we do? <laughs> yes, I know. No, he wasn't. It's not that he wasn't supportive. Yeah, and, and I'd had a cesarean as well, so you know, I was also physically recovering, and he wasn't feeling any of that. He was as supportive as he could be. But at that age, the kid really just needs you. Mm. And how much do you think that the thirteen years in between your children? I'm imagining culturally, again, those were 13 years when the press and the media were paying lots of attention to the people who had pinged back into their pre-baby body and it felt like motherhood was getting fetishised in a certain way. How much do you think that affected you? Oh, a lot. I think it affected all of us. I still think it affects women now less than it did then, but it was at its peak then. It just adds to the sense of failure and it's so unreal. Your body shouldn't be pinging back. You know, you've been through something profound and huge and your body will never be the same again. You know, I I look at all the stretch marks and the cesarean scar and all of that and I own it. It's like my badge of honour. Every stretch mark was earned. Every wrinkle on my face is earned. You know, my body is a map of my life and I love it. What a lovely thing to say. It's your new body for your new mother personhood. Um, And how old is your son now? 13. Does he like routine or does he not? (laughs) That's such an interesting question. (laughs) Yes, he does actually, to some extent. Or at least he likes me to be around to impose it. (laughs) It's that thing, isn't it? I think all kids need boundaries. So he enjoys those boundaries, but he jazzes and riffs in between them, which I think is really healthy. I'm really trying to learn that lesson that, you know, I learned from the whole Gina Ford experience, which is give him security in his boundaries, but let let him be who he is, let him grow, let him find that thing and is that enough, he can own. Do you, do you feel that another thing that that episode taught you was to follow your instincts? And to- really totally, yeah, totally. That's why it was quite a valuable lesson quite early on. And I did it for the, for the rest of that time. And you have loads of ups and downs with kids, you know, there are points where you go, oh my God, they're actually you know, either they're nuts or I am, but there's something really wrong. And why is he doing that? Why is she done? And I will, and at those points, I, I go, what do I, I know, I gave birth to this person. They were in me for nine months. I should know. What is that little voice inside me telling me about this? Do I need help? If my instincts say yes, yeah, I'm going to ask for it. So I'm just working out the maths because even though I'm rubbish at maths, I can occasionally do simple mental arithmetic. <laughs> so is your daughter 26? Yes. Do you think it's hard to be in your 20s nowadays? Yes, maybe. I think the 20s are hard generally. I think my 20s were hard. It's supposed to be your peak time, isn't it? Although maybe that's changing too. But no, for me, it was it, I was jelly. I was so unfinished and unmoulded and carrying a lot of baggage about expectation about how I should behave as a woman. Um, and I don't think she has that, mm. which I love. And I look at the generation coming up, the woke generation, and their love for the environment and their passionate commitment to it and their distrust of existing political systems and their embracing and celebration of feminism. And I have a lot of hope. Um, So I think in some ways the 20s is, the generation in their 20s and younger are quite inspirational. In other ways, I think you poor sod, you have social media. And that is the big difference, that I feel blessed I didn't have that when I was growing up. I was allowed to make my mistakes in private. Do you have social media now? I'm on Twitter and that's it. Mm. Not even on Facebook or Instagram or anything. 
takes up too much time as it is. And what's been your favourite decade thus far? Oh, I think they all have a flavour. I'm not sure I have a favourite. What's the flavour of your current decade? Juicy plum. Love! <laughs> <laughs> I'm ripe. I'm ripe and ready to go. <laughs> oh, Mira Sayal, juicy plum, smear test autographer. <laughs> You've been an absolute delight. Thank you so, so much for coming on How It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed this episode of How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, I would so appreciate it if you could rate, review and subscribe. Apparently, it helps other people know that we exist.